Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. All right, folks, time for the podcast bonus segment here on DM Radio. So within our metadata, we have this notion of a semantic uh, component and a technical component. The technical components are empirical elements. These are facts that you can calculate. Statistical demographics, for instance. Right? We know the histogram, the nullability, the selectability of a thing. We also know range of values, right? Like blood pressure can only be so high and so low. Otherwise, you know, maybe... Um, you're not alive. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so um, we we profile all of these things and we wrap them up to these semantic things. That's why it's so specific to not have a general tool, right? Hmm. It's, it's important to make it um, specific to that use case. So we're focusing, let's say, on identity, right? All the right. components that make up identity have legal ranges of values, have a distribution, right? And when right. we find that thing and we tie it to a semantic definition, now... Um, we can go and profile. We know what it should mean. Once we find that match, then all the automatic things that you've built in a semantic layer just work, right? Interesting. So that's how we make it scalable. That's interesting. Okay, that's uh, that's smart. I think, well, no one was ever going to define a universal ontology anyway. <laughs> but, you, but, you know, if you work from the bottom up, you stand a pretty good chance of having a very rich Let's call it ontology for a specific area. Mm-hmm. And you can apply the same methodology wherever you go because files are much, you know, files, databases, whatever, they're much of a muchness in terms of um, mm-hmm. what they, you know, in terms of their variety, their, their variety. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, that's a very good point, uh, Dr. Bloor. So the idea is that what we do is we abstract um, different file formats right, so that we can address them in a common way. So for instance, if you have something in an Oracle database on-prem and it's old, you might have make, you might have dumped it as a JSON or an XML file and stuck it in S3. It's the same file, same regulatory mm-hmm. concerns, same business interests, right? So mm-hmm. because we abstract that, we can make the same discoveries. We will make the same matches. We can even tell you if the file is pretty much the same. It's one of the things we can do, and we mm-hmm. identify that. Data is always in motion, right? And that is the nature of this new beast that we're dealing with. So we have to have a way of handling that. And that's this is the one way we do that. So if you know the there's a different flavor of storing data, maybe people are sick of Parquet because you know they don't need uh, some of the aspects of it, or they need more, right? It doesn't matter. Because we abstract that, we can... Um, uh, continue and leverage the metadata we create. Um, but you make a funny uh, or interesting point about ontologies. So one thing that we try to do um, is while ontologies are much closer to the way human beings deal with data and business deals with data, um, there's yet another way you can look at the data. Um, IBM coined uh, a term called a folksonomy. It sounds kind of interesting yeah i remember that wow yeah yeah but the idea is that 
there is no strict orthodoxy, right? The idea is that there can be different, just like data is not one data lake. I mean, we learned that the hard way. Um, there's no one repository for a perfect orthodoxy of labeling or naming data. So what we try to do is we create synonyms, right? If you define something as a account holder, is that really different than a customer for a bank? No, it isn't, right? Um, the great thing is because we focus on very specific verticals and use cases, there's only so much of, of a variance. There's only so many ways you can call that, but they are different. And almost no organization uses a strict uh, naming structure, right? You have a taxonomy for insurance in the U.S. called Accord. Nobody uses that precisely, <laughs> but they all, uh, but they all kind of use it. Uh, they all have their own flavor of it. So we create our models for that standard, but we realize we need to make um, a bunch of synonyms for each customer. So that act, uh, that piece is really the part that takes the most time, and it's very quick. So that's one way that we can repurpose, reuse this, you know, um, this library or uh, subscription that we create for that use case. So, so here's a philosophical point, I suppose. The, the, the reason that data is different in fact from one instantiation to another mostly is because it's contextual. Yes. And the problem of data is the problem of actually managing to extract the, the things that are not contextual from the data in order to preserve their value because it's contextual because it's running in an application and no one's going to change that. You know, so that that's part. And when you started talking about synonyms, it's just like, yeah, that's it. It's like that's the the way that you're going to have to go. You probably explored it way more than my mind is going to be able <laughs> to kind of invent. But you know, you can see, yes, you you there's always going to be something indefinite about this because of the context problem. But if you can minimize the level of indefiniteness, then the value deliver could be quite extreme, actually. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's take a bank. Um, a large bank will have retail customers, will have business customers, and will have a brokerage business. And largely, w with probably some few exceptions, most banks, uh, this data is siloed, right? So uh, a checking and savings account holder is different than a brokerage account holder. One's a customer, one's a brokerage account, right? But in actuality, what you really want is a 360 view of the customer. You need all of it, right? Maybe you want to know that so you can sell them insurance or offer them special, you know, micro segmentation credit cards, right? These are opportunities that would largely be missed. But if you were able to aggregate those different silos, you could definitely do a lot more. Con um, on the flip side of that, from a compliance standpoint, um, you could identify a lot of risks, a lot of exposures you have, right? Mm -hmm. um, so these are things that you could see. Maybe yeah. an account holder is perhaps not balanced in the way they're managing their assets and their liabilities, right? So these are things that we can now uh, make available um, and we can use other algorithms that we already have to make recommendations or uh, do credit ratings, all kinds of really neat opportunities that are unnecessarily constrained by this 
division of labor that we've gotten through a kind of a legacy or organic growth, right? And that's really what we're trying to solve. Yeah, that's excellent. That's really good. Yeah, it's like a de facto fuzzy MDM. <laughs> well, MDM has kind of got a a, a storied uh, past, so yeah. I don't know if I'd use that, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, you're right. Well, you know, metadata came first, and then master data was its you know great uncle, I suppose. Uh-huh. Somehow, exactly. Um, exactly. But you had different kinds of MDM and very different approaches for solving it. And in the early days, I remember you had to be very strict in your organizational discipline basically forcing people to use certain codes and to work in a certain way exactly always a difficult thing to do because well yeah and i would i would put a little finer point on that eric i i I don't know that it's difficult i think it's impossible right (laughs) you know know, whenever you start one of these things you're going to cherry pick a good you know use case or a good area but you know halfway through the second year you know you run into problems third year never happens right and it just, it, it just, you know, you know, it comes to a screeching halt. And it's because, you know, um, as Robin mentioned, it, data resides in a contextual um, place for different organizations, even within the same company, right? Yeah, right? So in order for them to change their context to match somebody else's context or another group's context, they're going to have to turn all that stuff upside down. Their applications have to change. And that's just too much of a heavy lift. Right. right. Really, what you want to do is just figure out another way to collaborate. And that's going to be through the data layer. Yeah. As Robin knows, we've been doing this a long time. The uh, pre-show banter is often the best. You've heard AM. You've heard FM. Now, tune into DM Radio, the world's longest running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back once again to the longest-running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Yours truly, Eric Cavanaugh here. A little bit sluggish today, not going to lie. was at Click World the last few days and took the red eye home and we got to Chicago fine and then that plane had some problems and uh, they had to decommission the plane which was fun I watched one of the workers in the airport look at the people outside she said what are they working on I'm like oh that's not a good sign and sure enough decommissioned the plane had to wait but it gives the whole lowdown they were calling headquarters getting a new plane from downtown all this stuff so yeah we were supposed to be home this morning got home 10 minutes ago just in time for the show on dark data. So this is good stuff. Dark data. We were witnessing asset management in Chicago. As I explained to my wife, I said, this is an asset management issue. Where are our assets and how can we get them there? How can we align the appropriate parties to get the asset to this gate and get these people back to Pittsburgh? And uh, it was, they did a pretty good job. I mean, it wasn't too bad. Stuff breaks, you know, stuff breaks all the time. That's one thing that scares me all the time is this concept of things breaking. But so the topic today is dark data. I love this concept. We're going to talk to Andrew on of Praxy Data and uh, our very own Dr. Robin Bloor, uh, chief analyst of the Bloor Group. And dark data refers to the data that you can't see, that you don't know is there, but is there. And it's all over the place. As I put in the abstract for the show, and folks, you can always be part of our virtual studio audience by logging in to the Zoom webinars we use to record these shows. But uh, yeah, 
So as we've learned ourselves, you know, dark data is everywhere. It's in any server that's on-prem. It can be in the cloud. It can be in some software as a service application somewhere. And most organizations really don't have a good policy or plan for being able to understand what all that is. We do have data catalogs that have come out and become very significant in the marketplace. But even that's probably for 20% of the data, maybe, maybe 30%. There's still that other 70 to 80%, a lot of it in unstructured documents. You know, we've tried for years with things like master data management to be able to reconcile these things. But the bottom line is that uh, it's all over the place. It's very hard to catalog and understand. And there's good value in that data that you don't see. There's also risk in the data you don't see. So that's what we'll talk about today. And uh, let's bring in our friend Andrew on from Proxy Data. Former Hortonworks guy who was the Atlas person, the metadata uh, tool from Hortonworks. So he's been around the block a few times and knows quite a few things about this whole industry in this space and specifically about how difficult it is to get things done the old-fashioned way. So, Andrew, with that, tell us what you've been doing and uh, how you help companies illuminate dark data. Um, thank you for um, inviting me. Great to be here. <clears throat> Yeah, so I'll try to keep it brief, but um, I think a lot of folks know what dark data is all about. Um, dark data sometimes refers to this kind of unknown, you know, unknown, but dark data also includes gray data, data that you know little about or maybe was um, organized or labeled, um, you know, a long time ago and may not be relevant anymore. So that um, together represents, you know, a potential um goldmine in opportunity or potential risks. And that's really what we help uh, to try to mitigate. Uh, and we do that using different techniques. Um, so um, Praxy Data uh, is able to um, automatically profile and provide meaning. We automatically label data. Uh, we do this in a different way. Many companies are able to do this. Many tools can. We focus specifically on certain verticals, specific use cases. So we can provide pre-trained libraries to do this matching and provide um, value uh, much more quickly. And because we focus on a narrow band, we're able to provide um, much better matching capabilities, um, much less training required, uh, practically none. Uh, comes pre-trained. We have a subscription, so we're always updating it. So we think that's the the right way to tackle this problem. Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll jump in real quick because you reminded me of something that is very, very important. With any tool that you use in your business on the data side, with any technology that you bring in to get things done, if it's not intuitive enough, if it's not designed such that you can start to get value fairly quickly, you're going to have a really hard time getting buy-in and you're going to have a hard time getting usage. And that happens all the time. You get companies that buy sometimes very expensive software products and uh, they don't really, I mean, they go into production, but they don't really get used. And, you know, a critical component it, to me is how, how quickly can you get us rolling with something that's going to show value and it seems to me that's something you've learned over the years of being in the enterprise software industry right oh absolutely thanks for that uh leading question there i appreciate that yeah i think that's one of the critical areas um in the space that's not being addressed uh, we have really great tools we have great you know um workspaces to create um ml uh, and get these insights but you know companies spend a lot of time ramping up and that's just lost opportunity right? That's time that you could be um, conducting new campaigns 
or tying up very, very valuable resources to organize that data. You don't want to make this tool so complicated that you have to change the way, you know, companies do things. Um, we talked about that actually before the show started. Um, if the context that, uh, a, uh, that an organization already has is fundamentally different than this tool um, is, you know, designed for it, that's going to, that dissonance causes a lot of friction, um, will result in failure for a lot of, you know, deployments. Um, it will either lengthen the time of deployments to like from months to years in some cases, or um, it could, you know, basically make the, the that project fail. So the key really is to get rolling, get on the ground, show value quickly. And if you can do that, you get buy-in and then there's excitement and then there's also additional benefits you can get from it. So I 100% agree. Yeah, one and one other thing I'll point out there for the audience to kind of help them understand most I mean almost everyone who's been on the interwebs understands a search. You go and search for something. And the reason you can find stuff through these search engines is because these companies spent time indexing the web. They have little crawlers to go around and bring back data, metadata, et cetera. What are the, what are the text strings in this uh, particular document on this page? And that's what you're searching. And you have enterprise search and you have search in, on your Mac and all these things. So people kind of know search. But what you're doing and where the, the challenge that you're addressing is a sort of comprehensive search and tagging exercise to give some meaning to the entire corpus of texts and files that you have in your environment, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, um, not so long ago, we used to call this like the data lake. Uh, that idea, that notion is, has uh, fortunately passed. Um, and so you have lots of pockets of data or stores of data, right? A lot of times they're labeled differently um, or sometimes incorrectly. Uh, mm -hmm. And you would never know by reading just basically the label or the top of these files. Really, what you need to do is open the box, look inside and, you know, introspect what's inside. Perhaps the data is of poor quality and maybe you don't want to use it. Uh, maybe it's incomplete. These are the things that uh, that we can help provide. The other thing that we can provide is based upon the value, the contents of the files themselves, we can provide uh, synonyms or alternate labels. You can call something um, you know, trousers, or you can call them pants, right? Mm. So the idea mm -hmm. is that they should be both. We should be able to be able to call it one thing as well as the other thing. So that's one of the things that we can do by introspection. The other thing is some files are very, very long. They're very deep. If you have a hundred, a uh, hundred, you know, thousand, 10 million rows, uh, most search engines or uh, tools cannot uh, get and take a look at that entire file, right? The interesting stuff might be at the end, right? Um, you might have strange corruption in the middle, right? So one of the things we can do when we introspect is also provide that information. Right? Hmm. This is very interesting. So I'll bring in uh, Dr. Robin Bloor to comment on this. You know, Robin, what impressed me about their approach is the comprehensive nature of it and you know i've i've wondered for a long time and we should weave in a conversation around ai here and uh and our good friend these days chat gpt right and of course databricks has their right. own llm and uh, i've played around with this and it is no doubt fast, just fascinating stuff i mean these large language models are really interesting and intense but the key to remember is that if you're going to point ai at your data 
some algorithm to find some pattern to enrich some process you really should know what you're pointing it at and most organizations cannot do that right now so that greatly limits them in terms of what they can use to train these models and that is not a small deal so what I think is interesting is that these folks from Proxy Data are trying to solve for that very, very big problem, which you know we've now heard. I think the the probably the biggest critique of ChatGPT I've come across is the inaccuracy of things because it just gets things wrong. And so in that sense, it's different from Google, which tried very hard to at least point you in a direction where you're going to probably find something. ChatGPT just tells you things. So we're in a very interesting space right now. But what do you think about all that, Robin? Well, I mean, there's there are separate kind of strands to this. You know, first of all, if we um, um, go towards the 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 fundamental problem that um, perhaps the data is um, pointing its guns at, um, the data was always dark in the sense that from the moment that we started to process data, we started to spin off files and all directs before databases even that weren't properly identified that the metadata that defined the file was in the program that acted upon it and nowhere else. And then there was the other problem is that human beings are a very good store of metadata. And a lot of systems work because of the metadata in the head of the human being that isn't actually in the computer. That's right. So, you know, when you go to chat GPT and its large language model, its large language model can't cope, cope with either of those things. And it, it, it has to be said that really what chat GPT works very, very well with is text and the meaning in text. It, it's, it's very good. Uh, um, uh, language-based um, collections of data. At this point in time, um, you can't, to my knowledge, properly point it at your data, but even if you could, it's taken its understanding of metadata from the big world out there. It hasn't taken it from your corporation or company or whatever. And if, if you're going to trust it with doing things, the last thing you actually want is it getting it wrong around the data that's most valuable to you, which is your data. So I think ChatGPT has got a long way to go before it can probably need a version of it that it's like you kind of think it's very smart in some of the things it does, but you need a version of it, which is right to stop it thinking about all of these things. And I want to add in my corporate data to it and see what it can come up with because uh, because of the way it works, because of a large language model is a, is a powerful piece of AI, it could come up with useful stuff. But at this point in time, it's immature to that. And it'll get there. But if it's going to get there, it actually needs what Praxis Data is doing. It needs a rich ability to define local meaning. Yeah, and, and you need – yeah. that's an excellent point. And, uh, you know, Andrew, I'll bring you back into this. This whole concept around collective intelligence has been around for a while, but it, it seems to me to be very timely right now. And you know, you see it, for example, with Google when they would have their Google address. I think maybe Yahoo even did this too, where they'd have their uh, thing of, is this your business? Claim this as your business, right? So here they are putting out what they think is the view of the world, but inviting the endpoints, the consumers, the individuals to correct them if they're wrong. 
And that's what you want, right? That's the kind of system you want for your information and your enterprise data environments, right? You want to know what you have, but be able to append files, or in the old days, you would just overwrite them. Now you just kind of append that stuff, ideally, so you have an audit trail, the transformations, et cetera. But that's the goal. And, and the point I was kind of driving at is that before you figure out a way to point AI at all your data, you better know what you have out there. Otherwise, you're going to have a very unpleasant experience at some point in time. What do you think? <clears throat> oh, that's that's a very uh, great observation um, from both of you. We're actually cooking up something that uh, we will be announcing soon uh, to address some of those concerns. And actually, um, uh, I was great. It was great to hear um, Dr. Bloor mention that. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. One of the things you don't want to do is uh, point your data at bad uh, pay, uh, point your AI at bad data, right? Um, we all know what happens when you put garbage in. Um, so. The key that um, for enterprises, which will have typically larger data sets than, you know, the public uh, domain, right? If mm. you have really, really big files, um, you know, something like ChatGPT cannot penetrate that and understand that in a way that's contextually accurate. So consequently, the results will be inaccurate. So this mm -hmm. whole notion of correctness is a really, really big concern. If you're using some kind of generative AI to come up with um, trends or patterns to uh, to use as a data point for uh, insurance calc uh, premium calculations or uh, risk models. Um, it's really critical that you get those um, you get that correctness you know uh, under control. And the way you do that is to control the source data. Hmm. Right? You want to omit or exclude bad data, right? Um, that will 100% skew your results. So I think that's kind of the uh, the primordial requirement uh, for turning um, AI uh, loose on your enterprise data. Um, the other issue is around permissions. Um, without this notion of permissions, um, you're you're going to potentially get um, unintended consequences. So depending on the the uh, the asker of the question. Um, you really do need to tailor the results. And this notion of security and permissions um, to those source data uh, assets um, are, is really critical. And that's something that we can provide. Uh, we can talk about more uh, of exactly how we do that. But um, that's, I think, one of the critical pieces missing today. Uh, that, that's a good point. And you know, it gets back to something I've wondered about for a long, long time, which is when you think about databases, especially older databases as closets where you're keeping things. Well, just think about your closet. I mean, there are some people out there who have very well-organized closets. I'm not one of those people, right? <laughs> and and disorganized closets really are depressing, honestly. I mean, if I think about it, it really bothers me. I'm like, oh, I can't think about the closet. Don't worry about the closet right now. There's too much stuff in there and just, it's just so unwieldy. And that's the reality of data in, in these information landscapes, especially for large organizations. It's just all over the place. Copies of the same data too. What's the number? Someone came up with six copies of every file on average is somewhere in an organization or in their cloud environment. This is a huge, huge challenge. As I mentioned, data catalogs tried to, to focus on certain critical components in the, the sort of ontologies, if you will, or the schematics, but nonetheless, not at the scale that you're talking about, which is to really understand what's out there across the spectrum of these source systems, of which there are hundreds, sometimes thousands, even tens of thousands. Folks, we're talking all about corralling that data, the enterprise data, finding the dark data. We'll be right back. You're listening to DM Radio.
Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. Back here on DM Radio, talking all things dark data today with Andrew Ahn of Praxy Data and good old Dr. Robin Bloor of the Bloor Group. And uh, Andrew, in the break, we were chit-chatting about these huge files and uh, just always make the analogies I like to make to you know make this real for people. Think about in the early days when you were playing around with music files or even just a few years ago, movie files, for example, you want to port them over from your computer to your CD-ROM writer. Remember, we used to always burn the <laughs> CD-ROMs back in the day. And uh, it just would go on and on and on. And then the file would get corrupted. You'd go to use it and it didn't work. And that's the problem of girth in the data world. You get these big files and they just send systems cattywampus and stuff doesn't work. And Andrew, that's one of the challenges that you saw out there with companies just taking these huge files and dumping them into the cloud as a way of storing them and dealing with it, not really thinking about how hard it's going to be to catalog that stuff and understand it, right? Absolutely. And it really locks away that application or institutional knowledge. It, it ties it with that file and that application. So it also has uh, another unintended consequence, which is because it makes it very hard to become accessible to other tools, tools like ChatGPT can't address them. So all those gigantic mainframe files, guess what? They're not cataloged. <laughs> They're not searched. They're not in that gigantic language model. It's very, very hard to do that. Um, they might be able to read the summary information about it, but that's pretty much it. Uh, they can get a report about it. But really, in order to get the best uh, results from ARML, you really need access to the raw data so it, you can get these insights that you didn't already know. Um, and that's really one of the problems um, with with data today. It's It comes in all forms and sizes. Um, you know, we focus on new data, you know, texts, you know, social media feeds. But there is a huge amount of super valuable information from legacy systems that are still locked as well, right? Yeah, and are you talking also about, for example, emails and Word documents and all these different documents that, that folks have, in particular email, for example, is that something mm -hmm. that you reach into as well? Um, we do uh, a little bit of that. Um, we're still working on figuring out exactly um, how to get real value. Um, at the end of the day, um, the tool is only as valuable as the results it, it provides, right? Um, that's really going to provide true value and staying power. So um, we're looking for, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we're really focused on narrow use cases, right? deep expertise, right? So if it doesn't fit that scope, then perhaps we'll leave it to other um, other companies to sort through that. But we really are trying to figure out something that would be, um, um, you know, really advance the central mission. Yeah, and I, I should uh, focus on that. It's the curation part, right? So you've got this component where you're, you're sort of indexing and labeling things and these complex mm -hmm. objects. <clears throat> but then the idea with the platform is to enable this expert curation, right? And so you, you provide these libraries and that allows a sort of fast tracking of the process of going through and finding what these things are. So combining the dynamic capabilities with the expert capabilities of the individuals who are on the front lines, right? 
Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so we want to make something scalable, basically give these analysts superpowers. So it doesn't matter how much data they're having to deal with. Um, they don't have to scale the people because you can't. Um, and so that's what we provide. We provide them you know, a force multiplier. So we surface things that matter mm-hmm. so you can get your arms around it. And mm-hmm. that's really what we're trying to do, kind of in a nutshell. The idea is not to provide you know, a thousand results or 10,000 results or that's meaningless. Really what we want to do is rank the relevance and provide stuff that matters just like in any search, but we want to do it for uh, a deep search looking inside, um, you know, enterprise assets. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of why I brought up search earlier. You think about elastic search, for example, you think about enterprise search, Google, of course, had a whole lot of business there. I mean, it's, it's a similar process. You're you're trying to find something, but what you're really trying to do is help make sense of this whole, again, corpus of content, right? Absolutely. So if we can flag interesting data, then if you use ML and AI to, to actually get additional insights, you can do things like find the weak signal, right? And the only way you do that is being able to address really large data sets. Obvious big swings, human beings can pick that up. That's easy. That's already been done. Right. Mm. So we want to flag the things that are interesting. And then from that, really help identify areas where you can find that weak signal, find that kind of subtle correlation that you couldn't find elsewhere. Right. And then use that to feed into your um, ML models. That's really the way you're going to get, you know, really that hockey stick growth in innovation. Right. Nonlinear growth is really what they want. Uh, This is a big deal in pharmaceutical industries. Right. Yeah. They want to find that 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 really weak signal that could be the key to unlocking, you know, a big problem they're trying to solve. Yeah, that's interesting. And Robin, you know, I'll throw this one over to you. I'll tell you what I hear here in the conversation is knowledge management, right? Like that was a whole thing like what 30 years ago? And yeah. it was just before its prime. I think <clears throat> it just the technology wasn't quite there yet. And so it never quite got there. But now we have these knowledge graphs, right? And you can work at a certain scale that gets very meaningful and very interesting. What do you think? Well, the knowledge graphs are very important because the knowledge graphs are a kind of multiplier on meaning. I mean, what Andrew's been talking about, from my perspective, I'm just sitting here listening, fascinated. And he's talking about the scalability of meaning. And the problem is that, you know, when you look at it, we've got all the iron we want out there that can that can um, tear through any heap of data, no matter how large, but it actually doesn't have um, a a sufficient quantity of meaning, it's not going to be able to do anything useful with the data. So So the question really is, how can you make the meaning scale? And the only way you're going to do it is through metadata, through some form of organizing the metadata that sits over... Um, let's call it dark data, because that's what this discussion is about. You, you're going to have to do that. Um, and you're also, and this is also a bit of a disappointment, really, but you're also going to have to involve human beings because sometimes the the metadata you need in the human beings and not actually on the computers. So you, you're going to have to have a manual element where human beings tell you that, oh, it's this, not this, you know. And that's got to be automated because, you know, human beings, if it's not automated, they can't do anything nowadays. <laughs> no, that's that's a good point. And, uh, you know, back to the, you know, what, what always gets me excited is discovery. That's what I enjoy is discovery. Now, you want to have a certain context 
And so, Andrew, maybe why don't you talk about some of these particular use cases and some of the uh, alignment that you can get by providing these libraries. So, you know, you could possibly call it a taxonomy, but really it's a library of entities and their synonyms, right? Such that you can then build functions that would apply to both these entities and those represented by their synonyms and thus have a more cohesive approach to policy management. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, if I can make the next uh, leap, and we kind of talked about this before, the idea is that um, this institutional knowledge, this metadata that you're accumulating, this enrichment of the data, um, currently it's locked up in applications or in people's heads. Mm -hmm. Really what we want to do is tie it to the data itself because the data is moving, it's transforming, um, people come and go, but you want to lock it up um, at the right place, right? And applications are not the right place because as everybody knows who's probably listening to this, everybody's in the process of, you know, decommissioning some legacy system or integrating. So that's never going to end. And um, with that realization, we have to figure out a way that we can make that metadata persist, that institutional knowledge persist with the data, right? And that's really the key. Um, one of the things we do is we are constantly improving the, the matches that we make to provide more insight. Well, that's just going to go into the metadata. So the, the applications you have, the, the reports that you currently have, the dashboard you have, just get better. And that's really what we want to do. Um, and as uh, Dr. Bloor mentioned earlier, you're always going to need people in the mix. And that is true, but you can't scale people. What we really want to do is give them a, a catalyst, uh, this ability to, to be a force multiplier, to give them the tools so they can address a larger body of data in the beginning, but still be effective and productive in what they normally do in terms of making decisions. So the idea would be to um, stop the amount of, you know, searching for raw data or categorizing data and spend more time making decisions. It turns out that something like 80% of a data analyst time is still spent just finding the right data, right? right? Finding the right set of data that's appropriate to give you the answers to the questions you want to ask, right? If we can reduce that, um, that's a huge savings in time and people. Yeah, and it's about, again, context for the worker, for the knowledge worker, right, Robin? And you know, there are all kinds of ways you can do this. We had portals. Remember the internet portals, <clears throat> the intranet? Hey, log into your intranet. We still have those. There are some very cool portals out there that uh, companies use. And there are all kinds of ways, again, to deliver the data. But what I think is interesting here is this focus on canvassing and, and beginning that process of labeling what you've got and allowing your team members to do that expert curation so they really refine their knowledge and they also catalog it while doing so thus making it available for other people right robin yeah and i mean let's we'll ignore the other ai for the moment and just talk about machine learning one of the things that's interesting about machine learning that i don't think has been emphasized particularly much is that it actually creates knowledge so there was a relationship between this thing and that thing you didn't know about, but now you know about it because you've applied some machine learning algorithm to it and it's thrown this stuff up. So the outcome of machine learning is to give you better knowledge, which means in one way or another, better metadata. Um, but unfortunately, the metadata that you physically got is trapped up in all of these applications. So there's also this issue of not only doing the machine learning work, but also 
being able to incorporate it into, as a fact, into your data after you've done it and to have a, a, a kind of repetitive cycle that naturally does that. And, uh, and aside from all of the ma- uh, massive failures of machine learning projects, even the successes have not done very well with that. Yeah. Um, if I can add to that, if I may, um, yeah. that's a great point. Um, it's this notion of collaboration. Um, data, uh, they're siloed in most companies. Um, and if you come up with a, a, an asset, you know, whether it's by um, through machine learning or through some project, you need some way to store it in some place so that somebody can collaborate. They can add to it. They can correct it. They can improve upon it. You know, if it's in silos, basically you're reducing its visibility to other parts of that organization or other companies. Let's say we're trying to solve something that is a global health issue. Well, wouldn't it be great if we could share all of our data and it didn't matter the way we labeled it or named it? Um, Of course. And that's exactly the point that we want to get to. If somebody does some machine learning and finds some interesting aspects of that data, commonalities, differences, um, if it's stored somewhere, somebody can pick that up and use that for a different purpose, right? This happens in uh, pharmacology as well as many, many other contexts. Yeah, it's data access. It's insight access, right? And what you're trying to do is grease the tracks to facilitate the reuse of data and of insights across different applications, across different environments, because what you don't want, to your point, is to have all that context trapped in a particular application or even in a particular user's login to a particular application, right, Andrew? Yeah, and you don't want to redo the work. If it's already done, why not pick up where somebody else left off, right? Hand the ball off to somebody else and they can do something with it. And now it's available for somebody else to, you know, riff on and make, you know, know, uh, additional insights. Yeah, I mean, I think this is very, very interesting, and it kind of gets back to, you know, you even sort of mused there about uh, how we had this bad <clears> idea <throat> of a data lake, and I remember thinking to myself, all right, we <clears> built <throat> the data warehouse and then figured out that the world is just too wild and woolly and unwieldy to have this be the centralized place, and then we do a data lake and did it all again. <laughs> it's like, well, wait a minute, don't, you know, isn't the world really federated, and shouldn't we have solutions that can sort of reach across all these different environments uh, and to be able to access it wherever it is and leverage it accordingly, right, Andrew? Absolutely. Uh, the time it takes to move that body of data to put it into one place so you can do your analytics, that itself is such a Herculean task that most often it doesn't succeed, right? It, it's a huge undertaking, as most listeners uh, to your program will know. Um, sometimes it's better not to move the data. Leave it where it is. You know, um, you know, it's being used. It's 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 a live data set. So leave it alone. Um, but if you can understand it well enough, then it's still accessible. Like you said earlier, it's still uh, part of this larger body of data that can be used for collaboration, search and additional analysis right. without messing up what you've already got. Right. No, that's that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, again, people understand the search metaphor, go to Google, search for something. The chat GPT model is new and different and uh, has its own quirks, etc. But they did something very clever, which is, I think, to create more of a workspace instead of just this field that you type your query into. I mean, uh, Google historically has not done very much with the landscape they're given, which has been kind of their thing. But anyway, folks, we'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to DM Radio. 
Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Kavanaugh. All right, folks. Welcome back to DM Radio. Yours truly, Eric Kavanaugh here with Andrew Ahn of Praxy Data and Dr. Robin Bloor today. Talking all things dark data, the data that you don't see. It is out there. It's in lots of different formats on different file systems and on different boxes in the cloud and applications. It's all over the place. And uh, getting your hands around it is uh, not the easiest thing to do sometimes. And just visualizing it can be a challenge, right? And uh, Andrew, you've got this concept of a data map that you talk about and is your map impossible to navigate? Well, navigation is also a very interesting challenge, right? So the more complex the schematic becomes, the harder it is to understand, you know, how do you sort of balance out the needs of keeping things simple enough to understand, but rich enough to have meaning? What do you think about that? Interesting question. Um, And it's it's a good one. Um, When faced with, you know, too long of a list, what do we do? Well, in modern UIs, you just search, right? And now we're depending upon um, uh, the ranking of the search. That's why Google's so great at, at searches, right? Um, likewise, for um, enterprises, uh, that map becomes less and less valuable um, unless it's already filtered. And that's that's the key element here. You need to keep things into a manageable size. Human beings can only address so many different choices before um, bad things happen. And so um, usually the things that matter are not that many. It's a handful. So mm-hmm. despite the scale of the data, the si- despite the scale and the elements on your map to navigate, you only really care about a few things at any given time. So that's one of the things that we've incorporated in our design and in our APIs and the way our application works is to provide that 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 value from a contextual standpoint and to rank it correctly. Mm-hmm. Ranking correctly. And that, I mean, that's a good point too. What, Robin, I'll throw this at you. What's the old joke about... Uh the loneliest place on the internet page two of google search results <laughs> like who gets the page two and these days they have so many freaking ads i mean it's unbelievable for some hot topics you'll do your search and there will be like seven eight nine ten eleven ads before you get to the first non-ad piece of content which i think also is kind of hurting their business it's the you know the the downside of success, I suppose, because they've done so well in selling stuff. But now, like, okay, is okay, is that another ad, another ad, another ad? It's getting hard. I mean, I, just as an aside, I was kind of impressed that on YouTube, they've been able to greatly ratchet up the commercials per hour of content than you had on TV, which was already a ton, like unless you pay, like with cable. But anyway, I, I digress somewhat. The point is that uh, to Andrew's point, you can only see so much. And so that context is really, really important, especially context within the context of a workflow of a particular business process, right? Yeah, right. So, and the the interesting thing here, to me anyway, is that the uh, the most uh, interesting thing about ChatGPT is the questions, not the answers, because the questions you can ask can refine the search you're making down to what it is that you want, and the signal noise position, as in respect of its answer, is just really very, very good. It appears with no adverts. It even appears with no extraneous words. The only thing you have to worry about is its source. But so, you know, that's turned search into um, 
intelligent people able to ask intelligent questions and get really good responses. I do not use Google anymore to search for anything in the because I'm a researcher basically to research anything I don't use Google anymore it's hopeless um and that's an interesting thing after a fashion because the same problem goes for any heap of data the fact that chat gpt has got a good solution for um the internet in the uh, large language sense is um, is great, but it doesn't have anything like, it doesn't even look to me like the correct technology for the same thing, which is what I would like to do as an individual in the corporation, is ask intelligent questions that are very well refined and have a very, very swift answer without having to go through any kind of manipulation of the data in order right. to put in, I don't know, a data lake or a special database or whatever in order for me to answer the questions I want. I just want to have a kind of conversational interaction with the data. That's what is going to happen in the end, irrespective of who provides what technology for it. Because ChatGPT is going to make the corporations, as they've done before, time and again, ask for, I want something like that that does this to my data. And uh, they'll ask ChatGPT first, but ChatGPT hasn't got an answer to that. So they're that's going very, to look elsewhere. That, that's very interesting. And I was, so I was at the Click World Conference the last few days, and I was talking to Dan Bessett from, I guess he's from IDC, and Sean Rogers and a couple other people. And we were just talking about where things are going. And my big question is what we've kind of discussed here is, well, will these large language models provide enterprise value until you can do a sort of single tenant engine for your company that is yours inside your walled garden and at that point it gets very interesting and i think andrew you know what you're providing could be that intermediary layer that allows an engine like an llm to kind of weave in and understand and connect those dots because that's where it seems to be making mistakes like when it told me that i wrote three books which i've not yet written at least (laughs) it conflated with someone else but you could correct that in your own environment and say, oh, no, actually, chat uh, my GPT. I didn't write those. Oh, OK, thank you. And then it remembers that. Right. I mean, that's that's a sort of big picture vision about where these things are going. But, you know, just getting back to your particular use cases, there's a lot of value in not reinventing wheels and finding out who has worked on a problem in the pharmaceutical trying to treat MS with this particular protocol or these particular features that's a very complicated search for a traditional search algorithm to do, but not with a solution like yours or this layer of abstraction of metadata, right? Oh, absolutely. And each enterprise is going to have a very specific type of vocabulary, right? That is not used in, um, in the public. If you ask you know, Google or other search engines, very specific technical questions, <clears throat> you might get the answer, but it's going to be buried amongst a lot of noise, right? Whereas inside your walled garden, you've already kind of focused on certain types of use cases or certain domains. And so the results you get back will just be better. Mm. Um, it's going to be contextually more accurate and more relevant. <clears throat> and it's going to have refinement <clears throat> with perhaps proprietary um, ideas or concerns that you cannot make public. But because it's private, you can get this higher level of 
of uh, tailor fit answer. The context will just be better because of that. And over time, it will be a, quite a huge asset. Um, if it is internal, those assets can then, of course, be saved, elaborated on, and built upon, um, mm -hmm. kind of as we were talking about earlier. So if you're able to do this, uh, and I like what Dr. Bloor said, having a conversation with your data, um, if you can save that and share that and collaborate with that, that itself becomes an, an asset that is very valuable to um, an organization. Yeah, it's it's a. I mean, this is really a fascinating time. If you look at uh, just to make another analogy here in GitHub with Copilot, right, where it's kind of helping you write code, like, oh, I think you're trying to write this. I think you're trying to do this kind of functionality, and it'll kind of help you say, hey, how about this? Mm -hmm. How about that? These are suggestions, and I really think that is the direction of AI in general. But again, the AI will only be as good as your knowledge management practices and data management practices and awareness, and, and that's the missing ingredient, I think. So I guess what I'm saying is I think that what you've built here can be a great layer of abstraction for managing the meaning of things and doing so at scale, where again, you can apply certain functions like around PII, for example, that would then at least reach across the spectrum and tag everything appropriate. And then you can, of course, go in and manually untag things and search. And that's what the people need to do. You're training the model. You're ever refining the model over time. Right, Andrew? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another thing that we can do um, to get to this, lay, uh, this idea of this abstraction, this metadata layer, is that we're able to, of course, um, get... Um, understanding and insights about data that maybe something like a chat GPT can't. It, it's not able to penetrate really large data sets. And so we're able to do that. And we can provide the metadata that it otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So um, there's more tools in that toolbox for an enterprise um, with proxy data um, for generative AI um, yeah. and perhaps just um, you know the public version. Well, and it, it is sort of a call to arms here. I mean, we were kind of talking about that chat GPT and it being rolled out now is a call to arms to other players. Uh, I will say Elon Musk, when he called for a pause in development, I was like, <clears throat> kidding, right? Is it, are you being serious? <laughs> yeah. is, this, uh, is this a Babylon B or something? What yeah, are you talking yeah. about? No way that's going to happen, buddy. No way, 100%. But it's wonderful, interesting times. Always great to have Dr. Robin Bloor on the show. If you want to be on the show, send me an email, info at dmradio.biz. Look up Andrew on, that's A-H-N of Praxi Data, P-R-A-X-I-D-Data.com. We'll talk to you next time.